HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Nine times out of ten, when someone is taking the time to break away and do their own thing, it's because they either have a specific point of view or a specific passion that really sort of speaks to maybe not a mass audience, but the customers that I have and the customers at Barterhouse tries to culture and, and cultivate, I think are, are, are those type of people who want that story and feel like if they take a, an allocation of an 80-case made wine, that they've got something special and it's something that only they have or maybe one other person has. So that's kind of what we specialize in. And, you know, it may not be business savvy to the nth degree, like we're not making 100,000 cases of Pinot Grigio and, you know, flogging them all over New York. But the customers that get wine from us are kind of believing the same stuff we do, which is supporting these small farms, supporting these young winemakers who have a passion for doing it. And, and we supply them with a market. And we allow them to get their product out there to otherwise an untapped group of people. Hey there, welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network. And today, as the people in the East Coast, in particular us New Yorkers, trudge out from under a very heavy blanket of snow. Heavy blanket? 19 inches. Come on. Where are the ski lifts and the ski slopes? This is New York City, for goodness sake. We don't need 19 inches of snow. But what a great day to reach out to talk about the food of a sunnier, warmer climate. Um... And not only that, but go to the, to the West Coast, where we can find someone who can talk about it, who's not stuck in a, in a snowdrift. <laughs> um, we're going to talk today about Moroccan food, the food of the Mediterranean, really. I mean, the Mediterranean diet, as we all know, has been touted for, for many years as being such a healthy diet. And there, it, it really does have quite a rich legacy. And I have found just the person to talk to us about that, and that is Kitty Morse. Kitty is a, um, she was born in Casablanca in Morocco of French and, and British parentage, and she has had a nice long career as a food writer and a cooking teacher, a gourmet tour organizer specializing in Morocco and, and North Africa, and that career spans more than 25 years. She's been a guest on Food TV, CNN, Discovery, and she's contributed to 
all the food magazines that we know of, the cooking, the Bon Appetit and Cooking Light. And, and she's written quite a few cookbooks, among them Cooking at the Kasbah, The Vegetarian Table, North Africa, and other single-subject books like Couscous, Preserved Lemons, Edible Flowers. But the one that jumped out at me from a, a culinary historian's view is her, uh, her recent re-edition, actually, called A Biblical Feast, Ancient Mediterranean Flavors for Today's Table. Kitty, in that book, Kitty explains food's culinary, historical, and spiritual links. And I really like what the Austin Chronicle had to say about it. They wrote, A Biblical Feast is more than a standard how-to book, part history lesson, part cookbook, it weaves together stories from the Bible with exhaustive definitions, explanations, and directions not only on how to cook, but also on how to understand the food people ate at that time. A biblical feast reminds us that the Bible is not just a holy text, it's also an ethnic historical text that gives modern readers a window into the past. And Certainly, um, art historians and archaeologists have used the Bible as history for, for many years in their studies. And, um, and Kitty found this as a special way and a special link to learn more about the food of her land. And I'm welcome to have her with me today. Hello, Kitty. Hi, Linda. Thank you for this lovely introduction. Well, it's a, listen, it's a wonderful thing to be able to talk about the sunny, warm foods of the Mediterranean today, let me tell you that. And I, wanted, um, I was really interested to know that um, you talked a lot about um, food and drink um, and communal meals being so essential to physical life that mm-hmm. the authors of the scripture actually included them um, well, as we know, as parables and, and allegories, and what I mean, how, what got you inspired to use this as research for the food? Well, as I explained in my introduction, um, I was, and as you mentioned, I was born in Casablanca, and I was attending our little uh, Anglican church. It's a lovely little Anglican church, smack dab in the middle of Casablanca, if you can believe that. Hmm. And I was listening to an Easter sermon, and uh, it suddenly struck me that what I was hearing. In, uh, as the uh, you know in church was so similar to what I knew outside the church walls mainly that biblical foods were probably uh, first of all it's a Mediterranean cuisine so we in biblical times they relied a lot on olives and figs and dates and pomegranates and cumin and saffron and all these ingredients that are essential to Moroccan cuisine as well as possibly eating in the same manner, because when we think of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, table, which was, um, you know, lined in a nice starched white uh, tablecloth. Oh, the, la- the, the Last Supper, disciples. right. Yeah, I mean, the, and the Last Supper, exactly, and all the disciples sitting upright behind the table. I Suddenly, um, it's, it struck me that I don't think so. In the Middle East and in North Africa, mm-hmm. to this day, and most certainly in biblical times, they probably ate seated around a low round table, if not um, on the floor, seated or on, on a mat 
and the dish placed communally in the center of the of the diners, and they would probably eat with their fingers, mm-hmm. using a piece of bread, and in biblical times, leaven or unleavened flat bread, to um, retrieve the food from the communal dish. And so all that gelled, and I had my light bulb go off and say, oh, I think I understand this, and I think I can interpret biblical ingredients giving recipes that I... They would be pretty close to what they ate in biblical times, because obviously in the Bible there are no recipes, except as you um, as you mentioned in Ezekiel when we spoke Ezekiel's bread, which it's a list of ingredients, it's not recipes, and so which, which is how I, so many ancient ancient uh, texts do. They give they list ingredients, they never give amounts, that's nor, right. nor instructions. Right? Nor instructions. Well, you know what the French cookbooks of. 2011 are probably much the same. <laughs> they assume you know what you're doing. Um, but in America, when you do write a cookbook, you have to be very, very, very precise. But anyway, all that sort of, you know, gelled, and then I, I dived into the research, and it was so fascinating um, that all of a sudden I had a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, and that's that's terrific because it's a wonderful read, and it's a very... I think especially for, and I don't mean to, to um, diminish the, the information in it, but I think it's a fabulous read for somebody, for the uninitiated, uninitiated to culinary history, because you really introduce um, foods and the lack of certain foods that people might not have a prior understanding of, and, and it makes it a very good read for people. And as you say in your opening, I, I just, I really love that very first sentence. You said, to travel through the rural regions of my native Morocco is akin to being transported back to biblical times. And as you just stated, many many of the eating habits were, were the same, right? It's true. And, you know, it's, it's true to this day because when you travel in Morocco outside the big cities, which are, you know, uh, Modern, very yes. busy and huge and smoggy and crowded. <laughs> but when you um, travel outside the big cities, the peasants... <clears throat> live in much the same manner that you read about as it's described in, you know, in, in some biblical verses. I mean, they plow the fields with oxen, mm-hmm. in some cases with uh, dromedaries. They, they herd goats and sheep all over the place. Um, they also subsist on a mainly vegetarian diet, grain-based diet, because f- uh, meat and fish are expensive to them, as they were in biblical times, you know, meat fowl, meat, and seafood were expensive ingredients in biblical times. And so you will find that um, in relation to the Mediterranean diet we think of, well, it was basically vegetarian grains, greens, uh, you know, all the little pot herbs and green greens of the region, Mm -hmm. and very simple. And of course, olive oil, olive oil, and more olive oil, which is what we say today, have more olive oil. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and uh, so you just answered my my next question. Well, you you, um, mentioned in the book that the people of biblical times were really uncomplicated people farm in in terms of what they did for their living they were farmers mm-hmm. they were fishermen mm-hmm. they were carpenters so this diet these these products constituted their diet right the the grains and the fruit and the and the herbs and and the oil of the, <laughs> uh, exact of their little corner of the universe you mm-hmm. know because they didn't travel very far um, but what's different about the Mediterranean today and in biblical times is that of course in biblical times they had no tomatoes you know, you think Mediterranean diets automatically, automatically in 
in our time means tomatoes and all the citrus and the rice and mm-hmm. you know all the sugar products but actually in biblical times they didn't have tomatoes because that's, that's a new, a new world, world ingredient right. they didn't have peppers you know chili peppers which mm-hmm. arrived in the mediterranean with the conquistadors obviously mm-hmm. it's uh, it's not a biblical food so i don't use tomatoes i don't use peppers i don't use citrus because citrus came in later on and um, by uh, via southeast asia and then uh, probably Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, in biblical times, there was probably one citrus, the citron, the Etrog citron, right. which grew wild and which was used in some temple ceremonies, maybe. But um, so some of the potatoes did not exist. And of course, there's corn. If you read the King James Bible, it mentions corn, uh, you know, over a hundred times. Well, Corn did not exist. Corn as we know it today, maize, did not exist in That's, biblical that was, times. That was definitely it, a late New World food. <laughs> well, it's a late New World food, but what happens in, um, in the King James Bible in particular is that corn referred to, it was a generic term for, for grain. Right, or kernel. So I think, that, I think the, what, they, what they were referring to for the corn is the kernel, the kernel of the wheat. Right. And that okay. was corn. Right? Yes, that's right. You're right. right. But in any case, it, co- it, creates, it creates a lot of confusions, and because I've spoken to even, you know, priests and, uh, and pastors, oh, yes, there's corn. Well, <laughs> not exactly, yeah. but it's, it's easy to get confused. So right. there's also, uh, you know, there's a translation uh, little problems there that you have to single out sometimes. That's right, that's right. Um, there are... In the in the book, you give um, actually a lot of verse before each chapter or each uh-huh. recipe, which is nice because it gives reference and it shows your research that these foods did exist. Um, what what is a typical meal that in ancient times, let's say, outside of just grain, grain, grain? But could you describe, let's say, a you know like a a setting? What would they sit down to and eat in terms of like a dish, if you could name a dish or a, a not a recipe necessarily. Sure, sure. Well, you know, remember that in my book, I, I re, as you mentioned, um, I really concentrate on the cuisine of the average person, the mm-hmm. poor person, basically. Mm-hmm. So meat, fowl, and fish were, uh, were eaten by the average person uh, on feast days. So let's say uh, a traditional, a, a possible breakfast for an average family in biblical times might have consisted of milk, of bread, because of course they made their bread leaven or unleavened, and we have Ezekiel's bread, so there was leavened bread. Possibly a yogurt-like cheese, and in my, in my book I give a recipe for yogurt, you can make your own yogurt, or for a goat cheese, you can make your own goat cheese, so they certainly knew how to make that. The first um, instruction and, is go out and buy a goat. <laughs> well, you know what? You can buy... Actually, the, the, the recipe was tested with goat's milk from the store. Okay. <laughs> and it works. Good, good. <laughs> but you can also roll it in fresh herbs. And they had dill. You know, you could use mm-hmm. dill. They had, since they had coriander seed, they had fresh cilantro. Coriander is the seed. So you could, they could flavor it with crushed pepper peppercorns or with salt, the main ingredient in biblical times. And they also were very fond of pickled, <coughs> of, uh, of pickles in brine. Mm-hmm. And you find that also, you know, some of the recipes are very similar to the Roman 
um, Apicius, the Roman bon vivant who wrote one of the first recipes. Right, Apicius or Apicius, as, as some yeah. people say. Yeah. So pickle, the Romans also were very fond of pickles and brine. And maybe they had, you know, they had barley. Barley was the least expensive of the gains. So possibly barley gruel, flavored maybe with honey, of mm-hmm. course, wild honey from you know, bee honey, maybe. Um, so that would be, and of course, basing myself upon the Middle Eastern diet and the North African or Moroccan diet, bread dipped in olive oil. I mean, my grandfather had that every morning, mm. a little bowl of a ramekin of olive oil, and he dipped his bread in the olive oil, and I, I am positive that they had that for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, and olives. And olives, of course, olives. We still do that today, you know, yeah. in Morocco. So that would be, let's say, it would be a breakfast. It's a pretty good breakfast, and very it good. might have been a late. Uh, some, let's say this: since they went out in the field very early, they possibly had a snack very, very early in the morning, and then around ten o'clock they would have this kind of snack, and it would serve as a lunch. Mm-hmm. I mean, like peasants or like farmers do today in Morocco. Uh, and then dinner, very early dinner, would be the main meal of the day, and again, pickles. And again, bread, and maybe a potage, potage meaning a stew of uh, greens and maybe a little meat or a bone or something to flavor the broth, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then bread, of course, and then possibly yogurt, possibly fresh fruit if they were in season. So you see how it relates so much to what we eat today. That's right. Well, we do have some recipe, if you can call them recipes, I mean, some vague idea of recipe from the... um, cuneiform tablets from the, the Babylonian or Sumerian yes, tablets. So, yes, yes. Um, and, and there are given, as you mentioned, the potage, a lot of references to these stews where, you know, mm-hmm. a little meat and a lot of grain. And, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, that's, you know, so that whole area, the, the, the diet was very similar, right? It was very, very similar. And uh, actually, you know, those stews reminded me of, again, as inspiration for the recipes, is a Moroccan tagine. Yes. You know, yeah. a, a tagine is a for lack of a better word, an exotic Moroccan stew. I mean, right, today they're much more elaborate. But the tagine, in Moroccan terms, in farming peasant terms, is a little bit of meat, because, again, meat is expensive today in Morocco. And any seasonal vegetables that you could have that you grew, mm-hmm. and you, it's a one-dish meal, you put it in your tagine pot. You know, it's that pot with a conical lid, which is uh, so uh, distinctive. Right. You put it on a charcoal fire which you did in biblical times because they cooked over over charcoal. (laughs) And then you forget it for the rest of the day, and then you come home and you have a wonderful stew. (laughs) So I would imagine that in biblical times, some of their stews were quite similar to that. Uh I would imagine. Well, now you you talked about using the Bible as research, um, or at least your preliminary research. Mm -hmm. What other sources did you actually uh, go to for this research? Well, I went through decades of Archaeology Today magazine, which I found to be a wonderful resource. Mm. And I also, because I was very interested, since I had just written, previous to that, a book on California farmers, (laughs) traveling up and down the state and interviewing farmers, so I was very involved in the farm scene. Um, I, I was fascinated by the plants, and I found this. I didn't find it, but I came upon this book called Plants of the Bible by Dr. Harold Moldenki and his wife, which is a fabulous resource. I can't say enough good about it because this gentleman uh, gives you the 
the origins and the, the botanical names and, uh, you know, the Aramaic and the Greek and the Latin. Mm-hmm. So that was a great resource. And then I also talked to many experts. I mean, for example, when I was um, giving a recipe for a lentil stew, because lentils were very common, very inexpensive mm-hmm. in biblical times, um, I called a um, research <coughs> a research. Uh, organization, I think it was in Syria. I believe it was in Syria. But anyway, I talked to the experts there, and do you know that there are 11,000 different varieties of lentils that have been recorded? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I was calling to find out, you know, can the little lentils that I buy at my supermarket, would those be okay? <laughs> um, and of course, I mean, they're, they're fine Maybe they were not exactly the variety that they found in biblical times, uh, you know, in that area. But um, that's how I got sucked in. Yeah. I really, really was. I was just fascinated with it. Well, and as goes for so many foods, even New World foods like tomato. If we were to see the original tomatoes, the wild tomatoes, it would be we would not recognize them. They're nothing, n- nothing to what we eat today. So that's not surprising, really. But that's really interesting. Well, you and you um, referred to Dr. Moldenki in terms of. Um, giving you some kind of clue as to what is mana, because um, in the Bible it talks about so much that that people existed on mana. They were in the middle uh-huh. of the desert for all those years. What? How? How did that? Subs- you know, how did they subsist? And it was on mana. What is mana, really? Well, From what you can find not, out. <laughs> yeah, we're not quite sure, but uh, Moldenki and other researchers surmise that it could have been. Uh, the wind-desiccated lichen. Hmm. It could have been an exudate from a bush, from a tree, a mm-hmm. hardened exudate that forms a, when the insect perforates the tree. It forms a, a you know, the, the little um, the sap, a sap a sticky, the yeah, bead, a sticky sap, right? A sticky, sweet sap, and that fell to the ground in the morning, and maybe that's what they gathered because it was it was sweet. Um, so there, there are several definitions of mana, but I have to tell you that to this day, in the Middle East, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, especially in Syria and Jordan, the uh, the um, Bedouins gather this mana from a bush, and they use it. They sell it to confectionery makers, and they also use the product to sweeten their confectionery. Huh. And, yeah, even in modern that. times, you don't know, what, yeah. but you're not sure what the bush is, what the type of bush is. That because it's, be... it's the the Phoenix manifera, I believe. Oh, okay, the, that doesn't make tamarix. The tamarix Tamarisk. manifera. Tamarix manifera. Yeah. Okay, because that's the, very the, that's very interesting. And the and the the tree in English is called the tamarisk. So it's the wind dispersed lichens, maybe. It could be a sort of dried algae, maybe, and it could also be this hardened exudate. But there's, there are others. Um, just, a, meager, a meager existence, to say the least. You know. Very meager. I mean, I think it goes, they gather this mana in maybe hundreds of pounds, and if I, if I remember correctly, maybe 600 pounds a year. It's, you know, it's very, very rare. And, of right. course, the trees are in the desert, and it's sort of a, an expedition to go and gather the man. Right. It's called man. Well, we're going to talk more about some of these interesting details and go into some of your recipes and dishes after we take a short break. So stay tuned.
We are back thinking about sunny climates of and foods of Morocco and the Mediterranean and talking with Kitty Morse. Um, Kitty, certainly um, trade influenced the foods of that time mm-hmm. tremendously. I mean, we know uh, there were the Phoenicians and, of course, the, well, the Spice Road had not yet occurred. It was, you know, but people were traveling and, and bringing exotic ingredients. Um, and fish, fish. Fish was a big uh-huh. influence from, from a lot of the travelers, right? Um, because I wanted to talk about um, season, the salt in the diet. We know from ancient Romans, of course, that they relied on, on um, liquamen or, or um, garum as right. the salty substance, right? Right. And that probably was something that, um, that came about, you think, from a lot of these uh, Phoenician visitors bringing the fish in. Well, they produced you know, garum from uh, from biblical land, especially from Phoenicia, which is now Lebanon, was very, very famous. Now, garum is uh, similar to the Vietnamese nok ma. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, an intriguing uh, question is, why don't we use garum in Mediterranean cuisine anymore? But mm. they do use it in Southeast Asia, but that's my personal little question. Yeah. Um, so they, yes, it was a means of preserving fish. I mean, and garum was made, or liquamen, with whatever fish they had. So it could be sardines or anchovies or whatever. Kind of na- a nasty substance as it's, as it's very, fermenting. But. <laughs> very. And, you know, funny enough, very recently I saw something on one of the, I don't know if it was a food channel or a historical channel, or how they made it, where you put fish and you put water and you let it ferment yeah. for weeks on end and well, they the, would actually the, put the it in juice a, yeah they put it in a, they'd put it in a canvas bag and you know and, and then let it set it sit in a pot sometimes well, bury it right sometimes they did but the, in roman times and in morocco especially and if you go to italy uh or, or spain you will see the garum vats they created huge stone vats and we have some at one of the roman ruins in morocco uh, uh South of Tangier was also famous. Actually, possibly the Garden of the Hesperides, but that's mm. another question. Mm. Um, was uh, they, they have the vats where they just put the fish and the water in the sun, and they let it macerate, and it made this wonderful mixture, which they exported all over the Mediterranean, and pretty soon everybody was addicted. You know, it's mm-hmm. like Austin hot sauce from Thailand. Right. Um, yes, and it was, but they also had salt. They had mine salt. They mined it, and they also... Um, you know, had sea salt, they evaporated. Right, and salt was very—I mean, that's that was very important to the Hebrews and and in their uh, in their religious ceremonies as well. Right. That and you know, of course, the Romans when they like when when they destroyed Carthage, they also sprinkled salt all over Carthage, mm-hmm. so it would never spring back again. So it had also religious uh, applications. Uh-huh. But uh, but the, the liquamen or the the garum is a very intriguing product. So uh, I do not give the recipe for how to make it, but I tell you to substitute <laughs> nokmam and 
which you I know, think is a very good, yeah, that's it's, a, it's, it's an, it's an acquired taste, but, but I think that's a very good, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very good substitution because that's what it is. I mean, those fermented fish. You know, that's what it is. Yeah. That's what, so. and they did, uh, yeah, they did export it all over the Mediterranean. And, uh, you know, as we, we spoke about, about previously, I mean, they traveled extensively. The wine from, from Jerusalem was very famous and it was exported. The garum was exported. And then, uh, you know, they, they had, so global economy except Mediterranean size. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. interesting. <laughs> well, um, you've re- referenced now um, what I wanted to first say is that an interesting point to me. What I like about this book is, yes, you talk about the foods of the common people. And, you know, that um, in culinary history, that is probably one of the most difficult things to, to source and, and research are mm-hmm. the foods of the common people. We can, we've got loads of documentation on on banquets and royal feasts and you know, right but to find out what the common man ate is is a often a real trial um but you mentioned that um the domestic cooks in the holy land at the time of let's say uh, 30 bce they were primarily women well yes because they're the men went into the fields, right? And they also went out to hunt and fish. And uh, as it is in the Middle East, uh, in, I, let me refer it to North Africa because me, I mean I'm talking about mil, Middle, Middle East, East in no, general terms, Mediterranean but, but or say, African Mediterranean. Mediterranean yeah. Let's specifically North Africa. Yes, the men were, although the women certainly went out to help in the field. That is for sure. But usually the the cooking was the domain of the women, as it is today. And in Moroccan terms. Uh, you know, recipes are transferred orally from mother to daughter mm-hmm. through the generations. Mm-hmm. It's only until very, very recently, and I'm saying maybe 10, 15 years, that Moroccan women are writing down uh, recipes and publishing cookbooks. So uh, so I imagine, I surmise that in biblical times it was much the same way. First of all, the women are the ones who made the bread. You know, you need the bread, and as it is in Morocco today, Making bread every day takes a long time. Yes. It's about a two-hour proposition. You need mm. the bread, and then you let it rise, and then you cook it. You know, so that was their job. Basically, in the home, providing for the men who went out to hunt and fish well, and, farm. Speaking, and farm. And speaking of bread, let's talk about Ezekiel's bread. Now, this is a bread that you make, that you and your recipe is ex- would be using the exact same ingredients that they yeah. would have used. In, in that time. Um, what makes this bread different? Well, I'm very excited about this recipe. First of all, uh, I have seen in some uh, markets, uh, you know, bread called Ezekiel's bread being sold, Ezekiel's bread. However, when I checked the ingredients, the ingredients were not accurate for in biblical terms. One of the commercial breads includes soy flour, for example which did not exist in mm-hmm. biblical times. So mm-hmm. what I prided myself on is to take the ingredients, and here we have white flour, which was very expensive in biblical times, so I use it in small amounts. We have stone ground spelt, spelt an ancient variety of wheat. Barley flour. Barley was ground into flour, as was millet, as were lentils, fava beans, and um, garbanzo beans to extend white flour, the expensive white flour. So you will find in the recipe that I give, you make your own garbanzo flour, you just crush it in your spice grinder, or 
you can also purchase that in Indian food stores because that's a, an ingredient they use a lot in Indian cuisine. That's right. But anyway, these are the ingredients, salt, which they had. Um, and then for this particular recipe, I captured the yeast out of the air. I used natural yeast. You don't have to, but I did it. in. So you made your own sponge, uh, your own yeah, starter. Mm-hmm. But exactly. And actually, the funny thing is, is I left it in the corner of my stove a bit too long, and I had this monster <laughs> yeast bubbling <laughs> over my stove. <laughs> so I started again. But so be careful because it really <laughs> works. Um, and I need, and then because I'm not a baker, and I wanted to make sure that this bread was edible, I consulted with a very well-known baker here in the San Diego area, and I said I have lentil, garbanzo, fava bean flour, millet, all these funny ingredients that have a very distinct flavor. And so we determine, you know, how much white, how much barley, wheat, how much barley flour, and the percentage of lentil, garbanzo, so the meal, so that the bread is edible. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, I uh, garnished it, I sprinkled it with nigella seeds. Now, nigella, like cumin uh, and like mustard seed, is one of the fitches, the small seeds of the Bible. And nigella seed, also known as love in the mist, also used a lot in North Africa for bread and in Indian cuisine. It's a tiny little black seed that has a uh, sometimes called black cumin seed. I was going to say, sometimes it's referred to yeah, as black cumin. Sometimes. But, but it's but very, it's very, very feathery, very, very, very tiny and feathery almost, uh, the, the yes, seed. Yes, but it's, it's got a peppery flavor. Mm. If you taste it, it's actually delicious. So I use that on top of the bread. and you. So anyway, if you follow this recipe, you will get a big pillow-shaped loaf, um, deep, not deep, but um, like whole wheat bread in color. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really quite good and nutritious. Well, the photograph of it in the book is, is certainly does it justice. I, I have to say the photographs in, in this little compendium of recipes are beautiful. And the, the one of the Ezekiel bread, I mean, it looks, the bread looks delicious. So, but I, and I was really surprised by the inclusion of the fava bean, the ground fava beans. That, yeah, I guess that fava. was the one ingredient that really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, lentils and millet, yes, I mean, I was, I was not surprised by that, but the fava bean flour was, was one that more surprised me. But it's a beautiful... Well, you know, in, in, uh, excuse me for interrupting, That's but right, what no, I was going to say is you know, that the fava bean, the fresh fava bean, is one of the most eaten beans in the world, except in America. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it's more uh, popular than garbanzos and lentils in the Mediterranean as a fresh bean, and then also as a pulse, as a dried bean, because we use it in Morocco in soups. So fava beans is a very common ingredient in the Mediterranean, but not so much in the United States. Mm-hmm. I recommend it. So that's why in the book I give recipes for the dried beans, favas, and also it's in Ezekiel bread and it's in a soup, and then also for fresh fava beans. They're delicious, and the season is coming up. You know, um, labor intensive, but worth the work. Right? Worth the work. I mean, it's a springtime vegetable. So right. if you see them, and I'm sure in your area the Italians use a lot of fava beans, so you can probably find it. Oh, in the, the green Italian markets. Market. The green markets are. Yeah. They celebrate them whenever they whenever they yeah. first arrive on the market. Yes, it's it's very very well advertised. Um, and, and, as I say, worth the effort because it's a special springtime treat. You um, 
you were talking a lot about the nigella seeds, and you talked about uh, dukkha. Am I saying that right? The, the yes. dukkha, a uh, yes. very common mix that's used. Can you talk about that briefly? Okay, dukkha. I did not call it that in my uh, biblical Facebook. I called it a sesame nigella dip. But actually, dukkha is the Arabic word because this this mixture is very popular in Egypt, and I um, recreated the mixture with biblical ingredients using ground almonds ground cumin, nigella seeds, and salt. And I tell you, I eat this. I have some in my kitchen at this moment. You grind the recipes. You just follow the, the instructions. You toast the almonds, grind the almonds, toast the cumin, grind the cumin, add nigella, and add salt. And you have a fabulous dip. You dip the bread in olive oil and then in this uh, sesame nigella sprinkle, and it is absolutely delicious. You can serve it at a party and people will flip. Oh, sounds wonderful. Um, <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> sort of like the everything bagel topping. Right? Well, exactly. But, you know, the, uh, the almonds and the cumin seed are very, very Mediterranean, especially the cumin. Right. It, it gives a pop to this mixture that is quite unusual. Well, but, again, it's a mixture that you can adapt with the seeds or the, 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 the nuts that you have. You right. make your own. Right. There, I have to mention before um, we wrap up is that another. I guess one thing, one more thing that surprised me. I mean, I'm in, of course, in my research, I've come across you know a lot of these ingredients. We know many of us know who study culinary history know the background of the foods, but the tilapia as a yeah. fish that is ancient of ancient times that surprised me. St. Peter's fish. It's also known as St. Peter's St. fish. Peter's, yeah. Possibly, possibly, and for that I, I relied on a paper published by a fisherman who lives on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, that's probably the most, one of the most common seafood after sardines and anchovies mm-hmm. that, you know, was eaten in biblical times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that is uh, definitely a biblical, yeah, because what, a biblical I mean, food. And some of the foods that have really not changed a lot and will have changed in no. form somewhat by being cultivated are of course leeks and garlic as you mentioned in the top of the show and almonds and figs and olives and and pomegranates pomegranates, pomegranates. and honey of course right. but wild honey, yes, wild honey because they may not have had maybe they had sugar cane but they didn't refine the sugar. Maybe they chewed sugar cane, mm-hmm. as do kids all over the place. In, you know, in Mexico, the kids chew sugar cane. Not so much in North Africa, but uh, they didn't have refined sugar. So, so um, what they did, what they, pre- what they uh, made were fruit honeys. And by that I mean they boiled down the juice of dates, of figs, um, of pomegranates, so that can be a little bit citric, it can be a bit sour, mm-hmm. but when you boil, and of grapes, of course, which is sweet, you know, it's a, it's a grape uh, molasses, it's delicious, I use it in cooking, mm-hmm. and um, so those were the sweetening agents that they, that they used, and honey as well, honey, wild. Honey. Well, a lot of information packed in one little book, I must say, and it has been a pleasure to hear you talk about it and, and your research, and we will post the your website, kittymorse.com. You can learn more about the book and about Kitty's background and her, um, and her travels in, in cooking, and I thank you so much for being with us today, Kitty. Thank you so much, Linda. All right, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. And I would like to thank our executive producer, Jack Inslee.